walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 39. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Imagine walking the Camino de Santiago. I know that's a stretch, but work with me here. Really, imagine walking the Camino all the way from Saint Jean Pierre de Port, making it to Osobrero, and then stopping there. One year passes, two years pass. And still, no forward movement of any kind. Well, that's kind of been my situation on this podcast. Some three years ago, way back in episode 15, I started a series focused on rewalking the Camino Frances. It was a fun little gimmick, different from a normal episode, instead of mocking up a formal interview plan. I just called up a fellow pilgrim and shot the breeze for a while, exchanging reflections on our time spent walking through a particular section of the pilgrimage. It was a lot of fun. By episode 25, I'd made it to Galicia, and arrival in Santiago seemed imminent. And then the unplanned hiatus happened, momentum was lost, and my priorities shifted. Well, finally, as I near the end of this batch of new episodes, I'm going to make it to Santiago de Compostela today. I do so in companionship with two Canadian pilgrims. Up first, Sherry Kirkham from Ontario accompanies me from Osobrero to Triacastela. You'll hear about her misadventures with a siesta in Samos, and one of my top five scariest moments on pilgrimage. Then we'll pop over to Alberta to find Graham English, who joins me for the final stretch. He waxes nostalgically about these last stages, and really does the heavy lifting, as most of my contributions are kind of banal. This is why it's important to have good guests. Anyway, here we go, at long last. My virtual pilgrimage approaches its turnaround point. Sherry Kirkham is a pilgrim from Ontario, Canada, and she writes about her Caminos at MyCaminoResolve.com. She joins me now to chat about the second-to-last chunk of the Camino Frances between Osobrero and Porto Marin. Thanks for talking with me, Sherry. You're welcome. Pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. As I was preparing, I was recalling just how awesome this stretch is that we get to talk about. Before we do that, could you just share a little bit about your Camino background? Where have you walked and when? So two years ago, walking the Francis Camino, mm-hmm. my first one, and I went alone. It was something that just kept coming up on my radar. Mm-hmm. I had a girlfriend that was looking at walking it and then couldn't just because she had some issues when she was training. A friend of mine, her aunt, had been talking about it when we went to visit her as well, and she was going on about how much she loved it. So it just kept coming up on my radar, and I just kind of thought, you know, I've always wanted to be able to travel on my own and see a country really on foot. The more you actually walk through areas and see everything there is on the ground in a country, the more you actually get of the culture and a better experience. So I just kind of up and decided that, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to go for this. So (laughs) it wasn't like it was anything. I know a lot of people have like a milestone. They hit their 50th birthday. I was 51 at the time, so I'd already passed that milestone. Other than not working and being at a point in my life where my kids are older, the last one's in high school, 
The other two are off at university, so I've got more time to do things. And my husband's not a really big traveler, especially Europe, which I've always wanted to see. So that was kind of my motivation. And I'm very physical and active. I've done a lot of running in the past, not so much running anymore. But I just like the physicality of it, too, being able to put a pack on my back and walk. Just this year, again, a year later, same time, we actually left the exact same time frame. We started on May 31st for the Francis one. I started the Portuguese Camino, so I just did that as well this spring, summer. So that was my second one. Fantastic. Well, let's jump into it. We're going to follow the stages set out in Grands to give this some structure. And the first stage is Osobrero to Tria Castela, which they indicate is 21 kilometers. Right. It's a lot of downhill. Yeah. What do you remember about morning in Osobrero? I was kind of having a bit of a challenge. Like everyone in the Camino, you're going to get blisters and issues. And I just had one toe that had become infected. It was a callus. The infection had kind of developed under the callus. And so it had nowhere to go. So that toe was really irritated. And I'd had it dealt with at a pharmacy, just a leg back. But it was still like red and getting hot and itchy. So that night before the morning, I was really worried about what I was going to do about that. The morning it was better, but I had decided that I would split that next leg into two. So I did only walk for probably about eight kilometers that day Mm -hmm. just to get out of Ocebrera and down. Yeah. What a great place to get to savor though, right? To get to hang out in that part of the walk longer. Yeah, it was awesome. And it actually worked out well for me because we came in later in the day because we were battling a lot of rain climbing up the Ocebrera. It's a big climb. Mm Mm-hmm. And I went roadside just because it was a luge trying to get down to walk actually in the (laughs) valley. So I kind of avoided the mud and just walked roadside. Yeah, we arrived late, so I didn't get to see a lot of the town the night before. And I had caught up with these friends that I hadn't seen for about probably four or five legs. So I didn't get to go to the mass or the service as well. So I took advantage of being and staying later the next morning to go to see the church and just hit a mass. And I had ran into a lady I'd been kind of intermittently seeing along the Camino from the Philippines, very religious, very Catholic religious. And so I went to mass with her. So that was kind of nice, actually, to spend the time in mass with her. And the church is just so old and so beautiful. And the history of that church is very interesting, right? It's the Iglesia de Santa Maria Real, yeah, built in the ninth century. That was really cool. And the other thing I love about that church is that the priest there, Don Elias Felina San Pedro, was there for like 60 years, and he was the inspiration behind the yellow arrows on the Camino. Yeah. So that was really cool to learn some of that history. Yeah, it's a spectacular place, and... I'm always struck. I feel very fortunate the mornings that I've had there because if the sun comes out, you are often above the cloud line and you just see the sea of white beneath you with mountain peaks poking above it like islands. Sounds like it was a bit cloudier when you passed through. It was cloudier, but in the morning, I have to say, it cleared somewhat and it was misty and foggy and kind of surreal. So I actually (laughs) enjoyed looking down, like even the day before in the mist. You're right. You're up so high and you're looking down and it's just amazing. Yeah, the mornings there are special. So I'm glad you got to enjoy it and then worked your way down through pretty rugged country. And there are a few little villages along the way, Linares, Hospital de Condesa. And did you end up in Alto do Pollo for the night? Is that where you were headed? I actually stopped at Hospital. Mm. 
Yeah, I only did three legs. It was like a tiny, tiny little town. And I just, I needed a short walk, but I needed to kind of get away from that dampness. Osibrero is great, but it's very damp. <laughs> and I felt like I needed to get out of that climate with the toe that was really bothering me. So I only walked to there, Hospital de la Candasa. And I stayed in a place called the Refugio Exunta de Galicia, which was interesting. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't stop there unless they're not doing the typical routes, but it was very industrial. It was very clean. It did have a nice balcony to sit on, but it was smaller than Osobrero and definitely like a one-horse town. There was one pub in the whole place, and that was it. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of people, if they're not staying in Osobrero, they're staying just before it. Not many people are geared towards that night, a handful of kilometers down the road. Right, exactly. And you got to miss the vicious little uphill into the next town, Alto do Pollo which is one of those things that I will always remember. It always feels cruel when you are engaged in a lengthy descent, and yet, for some reason, fate throws a sharp uphill at you midway. Yeah, and it was. <laughs> and you're right, it's very surprising because you feel like you're kind of coming down out of the mountains, and then all of a sudden you have this super steep climb right up to, exactly, right at the top is this beautiful cafe. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was just have the fire going. I don't know if when you went, they had that huge dog. Gosh, I don't remember the dog. I just mostly remember the tortilla. Yeah, and the tortilla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. The tortilla was amazing. The fireplace, just to be able to warm up. Because it's still really, I don't know what it was like when you walked out, but it was just so damp and it just seemed so wet. And the cool just doesn't leave you, right? Yeah, well, when you're walking downhill, aside from that vicious little thing, your body heat just never has a chance to rise, so you're just cold. Totally, yeah. Yeah, so I've never stayed in Hospital, but I have stayed in the next village, Fonfria, a couple of times, and it's a nice albergue, and there's a bar in an old payoza across the street, and it's a place that sticks in my memory because I remember watching the World Cup there, the Zinedine Sedan headbutt game <laughs> where, uh, where he yeah. caught... He cost his team. So that's a very memorable spot in my mind. And really like the last memorable spot for me in the descent towards Triacastela. What do you remember from your walk downward from there? I just remember, again, you're still looking down on these farmer fields and this whole valley of different colors. Every square and rectangle is a different color. There's forest. It's foggy. You can see these lanes and roads below you. It's an amazing view. Like I took so many pictures from up there. We were late spring, early summer. So there was just so many flowers blooming everywhere. It's a wonderful part of the country. And I remember the trees, especially once you are approaching Triacastela and you pass through the last village before, there's this massive sprawling thing, just branches shooting in all directions. It's, yeah. it's gorgeous. Yeah, the albergue in Philobel had a cafe there, and it actually was probably one of the best lunches that I had. <laughs> um, they had squash soup with baguette and apple pie, and it was a super warm. Lots of people stopping, ran into a lot of people that I'd seen along the way. One, a, a French-Canadian guy, actually, and it's interesting because that was Canada Day for us. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of celebrating Canada Day by actually running into, because you don't see a lot of Canadians really on the Camino. Mm -hmm. 
there wasn't that many. So it was interesting that that day I actually ran into a Canadian twice. It was cool. That is great. And then making it into Triacastela, which does in fact have more than one road, but it feels like there's only the one road. You go past the church and the municipal albergue, and then you come on kind of Pilgrim Row with all of the cafes and private albergues. It's a fun little spot. It is a fun spot. A girl I was traveling with was actually there a stop before me. So she'd recommended an albergue there. And it was amazing because it had a gas fireplace. And <laughs> inside the gas fireplace was a boot warmer. And so you could literally put your like damp wet boots in there overnight and have these toasty warm boots the next morning. So it was amazing. <laughs> amazing. The people in the stretch know what pilgrims want, right? Squash oh soup and a fire to warm your boots. That place had everything you could need. It was Excobea, and I think they were affiliated with the cafe, just so it was a couple doors down. It was a great little cafe, too. Yeah, it was a quaint little village. We'd walked it later, again, ran into Cecilia, the Filipino girl, so I had dinner with her. And then walked to where the signs are to make your choice. Are you yeah. going to go and see the monastery? Or are you going to go the other route? And for me, I had to really put a lot of thought into that decision because it is an extra 7K mm-hmm. to see the monastery. And yet I wanted to see it so badly. And yet my foot was hurting so badly. It was one of those, okay, tomorrow morning, it's got to feel better. And I really want to go to the monastery. So yeah, the dilemma that you slept upon. My most vivid memory of Triacastela was walking it in the holy year of 2004. At that time, there weren't many private albergues, so you basically just had the municipals in most places. And the way that they managed the giant crowds of pilgrims is to put up army tents. That entire field in front of the church in the albergue was filled with giant canvas army tents, and you could just go flop down underneath. And so that's what we did. Yeah, they've totally improved since then. (laughs) So many places. You're right. For such a small town, there's so many places along that strip that you could pick to stay. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the last big stop before you get to the big starting point. So even with all those facilities, it's kind of the calm before the storm. It was, it was. And yet there still felt like there was more pilgrims there than I'd seen in a Mm -hmm. while. There must be still people that start a little farther back than Saria. Yeah, a lot start in León, some start in Osobrero, despite the transportation difficulties in getting there, but then then it really picks up. Next stage, Triacastela to Saria, as you said, it's a seven kilometer difference. It's 18 kilometers if you go direct or 25 kilometers past the monastery of Samos. Don't keep us hanging. What did you decide? <laughs> I decided to do the Samos route. I did feel better. <laughs> Every day, because I've been putting a lot of antibiotics and stuff on it, on the toe, it was feeling a lot better. So I was like, I'm totally going for it. So (laughs) I went for the Saria route. (laughs) Was it worth it? It was totally worth it. The only issue I had is that when I did arrive in Saria, I hadn't stopped really. There's not a lot of places I found en route to stop Mm -hmm. to actually have something to eat. So when I did finally get there, I was so hungry. I stopped and had lunch. You know on the Camino that everyone takes a siesta, right? You have that <laughs> time. And my mistake was instead of going right to the monastery to see it, I stopped and had lunch. And by the time I got over to the monastery, I had missed that tour. Oh, no. <laughs> I missed the last tour before the siesta. And so they weren't doing another tour for like, 
another two and a half to three hours. Yeah, and you can only see it by tour, so you were stuck at a locked door. Totally stuck. So that was disappointing not to actually be able to get in. Mounts are beautiful. And what I love about actually even just approaching the monastery, Samos, is there's crosses that they build into the mm -hmm. roads going down with bricks instead of cobblestone, but just the center is a cobblestone brick cross. And it's almost like a pebbled road in. And then you're looking down over the side at this humongous, gorgeous monastery. It's a beautiful walk actually just down to it. Yeah, it's worth it just for that view alone. And of course, it gets better as you descend. And along with the crosses, you have the scallop shell railings along the walkways. It's lovely, even if you can't get inside. What I also love too, and I don't know if you saw a lot of these on the way, but I took so many pictures of these old barn doors that were like <laughs> so many years of paint that were kind of coming off, but they were almost a beautiful piece of art. And there was a fair number I remember along that road coming into Samos. Yeah, people who choose the Samos route might be disappointed at first because leaving Triacastela, you are on a minor highway for a little while. But yeah. once you get off of it, it's fantastic walking, little footpaths, beautiful woods, and a couple of those broken down old villages that are wonderfully magical in their own way. Yeah, it was very gorgeous. I love staying in Samos. And the advantage of staying there is you don't feel that urgency to go on or to load up on food while you can. You can go to a later tour, you can go to mass in the monastery, and there's an albergue that's part of the monastery. Some people complain about it. It's a little cold. You may not have a lot of hot water for showers. It's definitely on the more basic side, but you know, it's like a monastery that founded in the sixth century, not that much of it survives. You know, it's been burned down a couple times. But for me, that's one of the highlights of the Camino is getting to stay in those older sacred spots and feeling that atmosphere. I thought about staying there. I've gotten a little bit behind the group and we all do this as pilgrims. You meet a group <laughs> of people, ones that you really get along with and you bond with and you don't really want to be left behind. So because I've taken a few shorter walks, I was kind of behind people I wanted to catch up with. So it would have been really a pleasure, I think, to stay in Samos and get that sort of feel of being back in the day because I love that. It puts you back into a time where you're wandering the halls and you're looking at all this architecture because we just don't get that here in Canada and the U.S. I mean, nothing here is that old. And so when you get these structures with these beautiful statues and beautiful architecture, for me, that was such a big part of the Camino. So yeah, unfortunately, I did not stay there and unfortunately did not get to see the inside of it, but I, it was beautiful. Next time. I'll share one more story from this section, then we'll fast forward on to Saria. So because we stayed there, we had on one trip a very long day the next day. And so we decided we were going to wake up early. We were going to get out the door and it was dark. You know, by this point, as you head west in Spain, because of the time zones, it takes a while for the sun to rise, even in the summer. And the walk from Samos is very wooded. <laughs> There's not a lot of moonlight that's going to be breaking through to show you the way. And we got lost. We, we took a wrong turn. And somewhere along the way, we found ourselves walking past a small cemetery. It's still pitch black. We see a village appear just in front of us on the other side of the cemetery. There's a single light coming from the second floor of a residence. And as we get closer, we can just hear coming out of that house the sound almost of like the music from a jewelry box playing 
very faintly in the top floor of that house. <laughs> it was terrifying. And everyone I was with was bravely walking forward, not saying anything, but immediately admitted to being quite shaken. Yeah. I actually have in my blog, I'm sure I have a picture of that church. And what's funny about that church and gravesite, because there was a church and a, a gate, and then mm -hmm. the gravesite was along the side of it, I believe, is there was an arrow on the gate door pointing in towards a church that led you. I can see why you get lost. It actually led you into the church and the graveyard versus <laughs> the path that we're supposed to be on. I found that happen a few times, and I don't know if people just wanted you to come in there and explore when it was open. Yeah. Um, but I walked through, I mean, I was not an early morning riser at all. And again, <laughs> so many people get up and start walking in the dark. I didn't want to do that. First of all, I'm not a morning person. But second of all, I didn't want to miss anything. Like it felt like if you were walking in the dark, like you said, you kind of got not disorientated, but you didn't see all the stuff that I felt like I didn't want to miss. Yeah, I get that perspective. And I also get the view that there's something really satisfying about being in the dark, hearing your steps and occasionally getting a glimpse of something. And when you only see that tiny glimpse of something, it feels more evocative than if you could just see the whole thing. Especially with the music coming out. From <laughs> I could do without the music. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't believe you didn't get lost just getting out of Saria because I found, and I was walking alone at that point. I'd always walked with people. So what's interesting about these stages is I was actually walking by myself. So really kind of reading the directions a bit more and being a little more aware so that I didn't get lost being alone. And I got lost getting out of Saria only because the directions had said, look for a park and then there would be a right-hand turn into the pathway. So I was looking up the hill and I see a spiker sitting there on this kind of covered, what looked like a picnic area. So of course I'm up, I'm gonna walk for it, right? <laughs> um, so up I go and the same thing, I got past it, I can't see anything. And at that point, when you know, you haven't seen a marker, you know you've missed something. So of course it was up a hill, so I had to walk all the way back down. And then, I don't know if you remember, but that little pathway that you had to take, there was a little bar, and that pathway actually went behind houses. And it actually, all the backyards of the houses kind of came to the pathway. I found it very difficult to find. <laughs> My theory is that the more you actually try to read the text directions, the more likely you are to get lost, right? If you get sucked into that, you're not just scanning for the arrows, and the arrows are there. Yeah, and I totally missed it. And what's funny is I would normally have stopped at that cafe and gotten some water and gotten ready for the walk. And I was just so focused on finding, you're right, the directions that I totally missed the arrow. It is funny. You don't need to have that guidebook on hand and be like looking at it so carefully because yeah. the arrows really do lead you. There's so many and it's just more obvious, I think, to kind of wing it, which sounds kind of funny, but... <laughs> yeah, I do realize that I should not be saying that as a guidebook author, but yes, um, <laughs> so it goes. I, <laughs> I do find it funny that we've essentially skipped over Saria and we're leaving it without discussing it at all. It's a town that I have never actually stayed in and I am often oriented towards passing through it as quickly as possible just because it feels so overwhelming with so many new people all jazzed up and getting ready to go. Like it's cool, but at that point for me in the walk, I'm usually ready to just get back onto a smaller spot. Yeah, my pathway from Samos to Saria, I had come through, like you said, that wooded area. 
and there was a group of bikers because you get the bikers on the Camino too. Crazy group of bikers that had these helmets with the horns. It was kind of interesting and they were hooting and hollering and having a good time and Buen Camino and I kind of laughed as I went by and it was interesting because where I chose to stay just so happened the bikers that went by me were staying there. So Sario for me was kind of get settled in the albergue, go out and grab a bite to eat. And then I came back and just had some great conversations with these Italians, the bikers. They were all playing cards and making their own dinner. And I just did a laundry and then had some chats with them. And they were kind of refreshing because they weren't taking themselves too seriously and having <laughs> really fun times. It was actually quite fun that evening, just spending a bit of time with them. Yeah. But it's definitely busier. And sorry, you notice a huge difference. Well, we'll continue on. And if one doesn't get lost, it's 22 kilometers from Saria to Porto Marin. And you're coming now out of the most rugged section, the least inhabited. And now there's a bit more stuff, not big places by any means, but, you know, a few smaller places to stop. Santiago de Barbadelo, Morgade, Ferreros, en route to Porto Marin. What do you recall from this section of the walk? For me, that walk was so much about, I was trying to catch up with people. I found it very frustrating that there were so many pilgrims and there was a lot of students. In June, what happens is the students get out for the summer in the beginning of June and the students, I don't know if you experience this, come out in buses en masse in the Camino, a lot of high school students. And so there's these massive groups and I do remember feeling like, oh my God, I was going to stop there to have lunch and the cafe is so packed, I can't wait, right? And so it's a mixture. I find that walk of frustration for me in that the cafes were so busy in certain spots and getting around the groups of people. Like it's funny because in my blog post, I actually posted a picture of this stream of pilgrims coming because you're kind of coming along the roadside at one point too. It's a mixture of road and wooded. And just a stream of pilgrims walking. And I remember I got so many comments on that going, oh my God, is it really that busy? And I was like, well, it just so happened that that's the students coming out of the cafe. And it was just this lineup, but it's not always that busy, but it is definitely noticeably busier. I had to step back and go, you know, these guys are experiencing the Camino too. It's a large group. It is a little frustrating, but it's these young students. And so I kind of actually started to strike up a conversation with a group, a couple, two or three girls, and they were so engaging and so wanting to practice their English and had so much to share about why they choose to actually get on the bus and do the trip. So it was actually kind of refreshing to just talk to them. And I started out with two students. And I think by the end of part of that walk, I was probably surrounded in like at least six of them that just totally wanted to find out where I was from and why I was there and just talk to me. And I mean, these are 15, 16, 17 year old students. And it's kind of a lesson in that you have to change your attitude. You get this attitude of frustration and, oh my God, there's so many and it's so packed and this and then, but if you just stop and engage with people, they were amazing. So I take small groups of students, nine, 10, 11 on the Camino and <laughs> we got to these big student groups in Galicia and they're always like, oh my God, there are these giant student groups. When of course, you know, there have been other points on the trip when we've been the big student group that's been filling up the bar. So it's matters of scale, but it is that process of othering, right? It's really easy to get annoyed with the group. It's really easy to get annoyed with the people starting in Saria. It's really easy to get annoyed by the bicyclists. And 
as soon as you have a conversation, you tend to find that they're, you know, as likable as, as anybody else. And maybe refreshing because sometimes those of us who walk a really long way can be so caught up in navel gazing at the end that maybe some of the joy can get sucked out of it. And the people who are new and experiencing everything for the first time, they're in a different frame of mind. Yeah, it's so true. They weren't the only ones I engaged with, too. I remember engaging with a family that had just started with a couple of kids. And again, the kids were just so talkative, especially the daughter of this one mother. And at one point, the mother's getting frustrated because the daughter just won't stop talking. And she's like, oh, my God, sometimes I just wish she'd be quiet so we could enjoy the walk. And I'm looking at her, and I'm like, you wait until they're, like, older because it's like <laughs> with you like enjoy the time while you have it because that's what this experience should be about it should be like connecting again with your kids and yeah it was beautiful I mean what I think I found the nicest about that area coming out is that the pathways are just so varied there's so many stone bridges there's those huge chestnut trees that are just gorgeous with all the gnarls they span two meters across the trunk some of them right they're beautiful and the the livestock there was a lot more horses and i don't know if it was there when you came through but there was a donkey um, that i will never forget because it was so loud coming by and it was like okay is it mad because everyone's walking by or is it happy like i don't know i don't speak donkey but my affection for donkeys has become a, a running joke with students, but I think that donkeys are right up there with dogs as the finest animal in existence. And I thoroughly enjoy the opportunity to connect with each and every donkey along the trail. What I did also find about that stage, it's like the cafes were competing for business. So much more, like many flowers, they had umbrellas, they had more sitting areas. Like it was almost like it became touristy mm. instead of the rustic and the basic and you know, you might have a couple chairs thrown out and you have tiny little tables farther back in the Camino. It was definitely more set up for the crowds, but it was also set up to attract pilgrims into the different cafes. Some of them were like more wine bars. One of them had a gorgeous view. I actually stopped to get a glass of wine and to celebrate the excitement of the 100 kilometer to go marker. <laughs> you have to celebrate that, right? Yeah. If you've done the whole Camino from the get-go, I guess the new pilgrims aren't that excited about it, the ones that started in Zaria. But when you hit that last 100 kilometers, it's just bittersweet. You're excited because there's 100 kilometers to go, but you're getting used to walking at that point. My toe is feeling better, and you're almost sad for it to be coming to an end. Yeah. It's funny what you mentioned about the bars. We walked the Camino del Norte and the Primitivo this last summer. And when we came into the Frances, you know, it's in Meili Day. And one of the things the students noticed was, oh my God, we go into a bar now. And we're not just limited to toast with jam or a stale croissant, but rather like we can get bacon and eggs. Feels like they're marketing to their audience much more and they recognize the international character of what that audience is looking for. Yeah, they just don't do a lot of bacon and eggs. I think the first bacon and egg breakfast I had was in Saria. <laughs> yep, that's where it picks up. They know their market. So <laughs> the end of this stretch is memorable for people, both because of the immediate entry into Puerto Marin and also, I guess, the final descent, which didn't stand out in my memory, but there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth online about the different approaches descending down towards the river. I guess there's the historic one, which is rocky and steep, and then people can also follow the road. How did you approach this? I'm pretty sure we ended up being on the road because I don't remember it being super steep. 
beautiful views though of the towns and a gorgeous view of the reservoir when you're coming down through there. It's exciting to kind of walk across that bridge and get into the town. It's quite a long bridge and that town to me was more of a resort town for Spanish, <laughs> like where they would go for summer vacation, right? I mean, there was boats in the harbor and it was just this beautiful quaint. Sherry, you skipped over the steps. Oh, the steps going up. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other side of the bridge. And yeah, those were like, you get through the bridge and you look at the whole stairway kind of going up and yeah, that's like enough. <laughs> That's like one of the most vilified elements of the Camino, the number of people. Like, you know, in every blog, when they get to that stage, there is some grievance aired about those stairs. <laughs> they are beautiful stairs. I have to say. <laughs> and if you don't want to go up the stairs, you can always take the roadside around because it does curve around and up into the town. But it's a beautiful view when you get to the top of the stairs. I took a ton of pictures. We've arrived at our destination. Is there anything that stands out to you from your night in Puerto Marine? I did like the square. The church mm -hmm. has got a beautiful, it's like cobalt blue rose window. So, I mean, it's a gorgeous church. It wasn't open, so we couldn't get inside. We were battling a lot of clouds and a lot of, it just looked like it could drizzle kind of at any moment. But it was an interesting town to walk down because, again, it was one main street with a lot of covered portico sides that you could walk underneath. So even if it was raining, you were covered. And then, again, like you said, they're catering to, like, a different crowd. So there's so many more restaurants to choose from. And for the first time on the Camino, I ate Italian food, <laughs> which is odd. <laughs> I have to say, it did really feel odd. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you, Sherry. This has been a ton of fun. And I'm now just one final stage away from Santiago. Nice. <laughs> Graham English is a pilgrim from Stony Plain, Canada, and he joins me now for the home stretch, the final stages on the Camino Frances from Porto Marin to Santiago de Compostela. Thanks for talking with me, Graham. Oh, it's so great to be here and a pleasure to be able to talk with you. This is going to be great. There's been a two-year delay in me making it to the finish line here, so I'm glad to finally get there. Before we jump into it, could you just briefly describe your pilgrimage background? When and where did you walk? We started this journey in about 2009. We read a book called The Way is Made by Walking, and it really captured our interest. And so my wife started a file called the Camino de Santiago. It's the first time we'd ever really heard about it. And she sort of planted a seed and said, one day we're going to walk this pilgrimage. We sort of just filed it at that point. And then in 2017, we went to Spain in February for some work. And we met some people there who had walked the Camino and had been up a number of times, hadn't walked the whole thing, but had walked sections of it. They took us to a town called Avila or Avila, just outside of Madrid. And one of the Caminos runs through there. And so we saw a sign that said the Camino de Santiago and took our picture on the Camino. And we went back home and I was granted a sabbatical for the summer of 2017. And in February, we started talking about going on the Camino that summer. I know that's a quick turnaround, but we're exercisers. And so we thought we could do this. And so we bought our equipment and uh, started to do some training. And we found ourselves in Madrid in May of 2017, then made our way up to the Camino Saint-Jean in the middle of May. 
the thing that was really interesting about our journey is that we had some significant medical issues. We joked that we started the Camino in a hospital and ended the Camino in the hospital. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> My wife had some significant medical issues that we had to deal with in Madrid, and the doctor actually said to her, if you do this, you need to go really slowly. And so we started out quite slowly. And then I also developed some medical issues that had to get dealt with in Santiago. So that's our context. Oh my goodness. The tour of the <laughs> medical system in Spain in addition to the pilgrimage. Exactly. Uh, so I imagine we'll get into that in more detail as we get closer to Santiago on this walk. So we will be using the stages from Grons for our purposes, just to give it some structure. So the first stage that we'll follow picking up the thread in Porto Marine is 25 kilometers from Porto Marine to Palasto Rey. What was your approach through this section? Did you have those as beginning and end points or where were you sleeping in this section? We did. We followed those sections. We went from Porto Marine to Palace. Good deal. So what do you remember from Porto Marine? Well, Puerto Marine, I mean, that bridge that you walk across is pretty unnerving. And I thought, you know, if somebody had the fear of heights, that, that would just about do them in <laughs> after a long day of walking. <laughs> but it's pretty cool as well. And the town itself is small and interesting. And that the thing that I remember was that night we went to the church. There was a violin concert hmm. in the church in Puerto Marine. And so we sat and listened to a beautiful recital that evening. And it was just one of those experiences that you only experience on the Camino because it was just serendipitous. It just happened. And there we were in this small town enjoying a beautiful violin concert. So that's what we remember. And, and as well, just as I mentioned, I started to develop some eye issues just around Tria Castella and started to realize that I needed some medical attention in Puerto Rico. So I remember that. I remember trying to find something somewhere that I could get some attention to my eye and there was nothing available. So I just was like, okay, I, I just need to find a place. <laughs> <laughs> so did you taxi out of town then? You know what? We didn't at that point. I had had an eye infection before and I just thought, I, I know exactly what this is. It wasn't that, but I thought that it was. And mm -hmm. so I just thought I can, I can just find a pharmacy and deal with it. <laughs> yeah. You were there in May or maybe June by that point. Yeah, it would have been June at that point. Yeah, so it wasn't quite the full heat of summer because one of the interesting things that you experience if you're there maybe in August and it's not a great water year is the river level drops. And the town of Puerto Marine that we see today was moved up there in 1956 because of the dam on the river. And so you can actually still see sometimes at, at low water points the rooftops of some of the old buildings in the yeah. river poking up. It was high the day that we were there. But we were there in a really hot year. Mm. One of the hottest days that we had on the Camino, the temperature red in Ponferrada, which was, I don't know what that had been about a week before. It was about 45 degrees Celsius the day we walked into Ponferrada. So it was a very hot year. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. So you would have woken up there and then headed out of town. And the Codex Calixtinus is not complimentary of this next stretch. It describes it as a, an open-air brothel. <laughs> the, the direct quote is, the quote, the whores who are accustomed to come between the Menean Bridge and Palace de Rey in the wooded area to meet pilgrims are not only to be excommunicated, but also are to be held in shame by all and to have their noses cut off. Mm. Well, we encountered none of that <laughs> on our way out of Turan. <laughs> We actually thought it was quite beautiful. This section all the way up to Santiago is one of the most beautiful sections on the whole Camino. And so 
we felt that it was a beautiful section. We left early in the morning, mm -hmm. as was our custom, because it was really hot. And so we got up quite early. And the thing that's unique about this section is that it starts to get quite busy because you have those pilgrims who have started in Saria mm -hmm. and are walking the 115 kilometers. And we found this a little bit different. So there was almost like a, at six o'clock in the morning, there was a lineup of pilgrims heading out of Port of Marin. Yeah. And you have that long hill coming up out of Port of Marin, <laughs> and it's about seven to eight kilometers. Yeah. And we were actually quite surprised at how strong our bodies had become because my wife, who started out in a hospital in Madrid and had a hard time walking, crushed the hill. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I said to her, what happened to my wife? Uh, something has transformed you. But, you know, your body just gets stronger as you walk or it did for us anyway. It's funny that you mentioned that because the first time I ever led students, we had a student who'd had a hip problem. She didn't walk for like four or five days in the Meseta. We wondered if she was going to have to go home. She gradually got back into it. And it was on that hill, leaving Porto Marine, charging past, you know, a lot of the newer pilgrims who were still getting their legs under them. That was the moment that she knew that she'd made it all the way back. Mm. Yeah, it's such a great feeling to realize that your body has actually become strong. We had to carry quite a bit of food along with us, and so our packs were heavy, but I think it's about a seven or eight kilometer hill. It's yeah. a bit of a steady climb, right? And we actually felt really good that morning. So we have great memories of that stretch. Yeah, so it's eight kilometers to Gonzar, as you said, and then right after that is the small village of Castro Mayor. Mm. Did you veer off a little bit to see the ruins there? We didn't veer off. I read about it after the fact. Ah, yeah. It happens to a lot of people. They discover that there are these ancient ruins just a, a few minutes off of the Camino there. Yeah. Actually, we met a nurse and daughter coming out of Gonzar. They had stayed there overnight. And I actually asked her to have a look at my eye. <laughs> I said, would you check my eye out to see if there's something going on? And she confirmed what I thought it was. She said, I think you just have an eye infection. You need to get some treatment, some drops for it. That was one of those moments where you meet someone and just really pilgrims taking care of each other. I appreciated her compassion. I didn't know her. We just met her. Just really appreciated her compassion in that moment. That's really neat. At this stage, we just would wander very slowly through towns because it's these last days on the Camino and it's sort of this wistful time. You know that this long journey is coming to an end. So even though I had this eye issue, I didn't want to get off the Camino. I wanted to be on there and I wanted to savor. It's like savoring the last days of summer or the last moments on a beach at the end of the day, uh, just sort of drinking it all in. And that was our experience in that stage. We just wanted to wander slowly through the towns. And we had lost our Camino family because uh, we decided that we would rest every seven or eight days. And a lot of the people who we had journeyed with earlier had moved on. And so we would walk through these small towns. And I think there's a number of small towns along this section. And we would kind of wander through looking for people, <laughs> trying to see if there was anyone that we knew from before. Didn't find anyone, but that was sort of our mindset. It's funny. This is, for me, one of the most difficult stretches to kind of stir the echoes and remember specific places and visuals along the way. Mm. As you say, there's a lot of them, like on this stretch towards Palace del Rey, there's Toshibo, Gonzar, Castromayor, Hospital de la Cruz, Ventas de Narón, Lijonde, Airexe de Lijonde. Like there are a number of places in here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for the life of me, I have a hard time putting myself back in any of those specific positions in part, because as you say, you are just sort of 
savoring and your body is able to take care of all the work without your mind necessarily totally being as actively engaged in that and one of the things that we really treasured on the camino were people and so in these last days our focus became on the people that we were journeying with you know having lost our camino family but now meeting new people we just wanted to savor those relationships savor the moments that we had with the people that we met and so we, over the course of the Camino, you just see so much. And by that point, you're almost saturated. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. I don't remember a lot of specifics of each small town, but I remember the people along the way. And you probably remember some of Palasta Rey because it's a bigger town and you overnighted there. So what yeah. are the impressions that you formed there? In Palasta, we ended up walking actually off the Camino. We wanted to find something that was private And we wanted our own room. We didn't want to stay in an albergue because we thought that I had an infection in my eye and I just needed my own space for one. The other part of it was not wanting to infect everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Alberges can tend to do that. And so Palais was, there's not a ton of memory for me, actually. (laughs) It's one of the few towns of that size where I think most people don't really even take note of the church. It's kind of outside of the center. And it's a funky layout to that place, you know? It's almost like an S, how the road curves through there. And so it just kind of has an odd, awkward feel to it. I know it has a very significant place in the ancient pilgrimage. And yet, for me, it was quite unremarkable. I also read after the fact that there's a palace that's worth visiting, but it's a bit of a taxi ride away from town. And so at that point, I think even if we had known it was there, we would not have done it because we chose not to jump into any transportation. That was just something that we wanted to do. We wanted to go everywhere on foot and we went everywhere on foot. And so we didn't veer off very far. For me, Palasto Rey is always linked in my memory to the race for beds that (laughs) happened in the years before I started to make reservations in Galicia. I remember having a group of 12 and no beds in the albergue and having to cram all of us into like two hotel rooms. I still feel bad about that. And then one kid deciding to wash their clothes in a bidet. So... (laughs) (laughs) I apologize to the town of Palastere for that being my central memory of it. (laughs) Well, let's move on. The second stage from Grons is Palastere to Arzua. Mm -hmm. It's 28.5 kilometers. It's a longer day, but more pretty walking. It felt like it was a lot longer than 28. (laughs) This is a gorgeous section. You've got the eucalyptus line paths, just gorgeous green we started out, it was a cold, misty morning, which was we really welcomed because prior to that, most of our mornings were quite hot. The interesting part of that for us is that we were walking to Malid and we were going to stop in a doctor's office in Malid because I Googled it and found something there. Along this section of the trail, we started walking with a pilgrim. Actually, we had met her previously, picked her up again, and she was an 83-year-old lady. And she had started three years prior in Lapui and had walked half of that Camino and then had walked the other half to Saint-Jean. And then the year we were walking with her, she had started in Saint-Jean and was making her way to Santiago. And so as we journeyed with her, we found out that the reason that she had started in La Puy, it was, uh, it was the year that her husband had passed away. She started that year and started her journey towards Santiago. And then along the way, she was quite guarded But along the way, she shared her story with us. And it turns out that she was carrying her husband's ashes out to Santiago and then out to Finisterre. She turned to us and she said, this is our last journey together. 
the stories of people's lives I find so inspiring. The fact that here I was dealing with my little eye issue, and we had this thing going where she was quite a spunky lady, and she was asking me how I was doing that morning, and I think I grumped at her about my eye, and she told me I had nothing to grump about because my life was pretty good. Look at where I was. I was out on the Camino de Santiago, and we did it all in jest. You know, meeting someone like that was just super inspiring. And so we walked through that to the town of Malid. Yeah, it's an amazing walk through there. I remember a couple of spots along the way. One is Casanova. It's an albergue that I've stayed at a few times. And one of the things that I love about it is from there, it's a one kilometer detour to the site of this book, one of the more famous works of Galician literature by Emilia Pardo Bazan called Los Pazos de Ulloa or the House of Ulloa. You can actually see the house. It's really close by. And I realize that that's probably a pretty small subsection of pilgrims that are interested in Galician literature, but I recommend it. It's cool. <laughs> and then you can actually access, along the lines of the ruins of Castromayor in the previous section, there are some mamoas, or these 2,000-year-old funeral barrows, that are pretty close to Ferelos, which is the last town before Melide. So you have this ancient prehistoric history. You know, people talk a lot about the prehistoric route that underlies the Camino, but you can actually feel it in places, the Roman road, Castromayor, and these mamoas. I mean, it's still there. It's present along the route. And getting into Malid, it's quite a large city. And we had to find a doctor's office that we had Googled, which was a little bit off the path. We don't know a lot of Spanish and walked into this doctor's office. The young lady at the front spoke a little bit of English. And I told her that I had an eye issue and I asked if I could see a doctor. It was quite an experience because initially we could kind of make out that he wasn't really too thrilled about seeing me and then eventually agreed to. It turns out that the young lady sitting at the desk was his daughter who was about 10 years old. And so he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. He called me into his office, put me down on the bed and I'm laying there and it's this doctor who's got this scruffy head of hair, big bushy mustache and beard. He lays me down. He's looking right into my eye doesn't speak any English, and his 10-year-old daughter is translating for me and for him back and forth. And so it was this strange experience. He looked more like a veterinarian than a doctor. And I kind of wondered, like, should I be here? <laughs> he was about to put you down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure if I should be in this spot. But he said, yeah, you've got an infection. You need stronger medication. I had found something at a pharmacy before somewhere else. And he said, you need stronger medication. So off I went and found a pharmacy and uh, got the medication and started to treat my eye. We stopped in Malid, and I think it was there. We sat on the sidewalk and had some Santiago cake and coffee. Malid was a great little spot that people watch and a busy little hub. And so Malid was a great little stop for us. Did you get pulpo there as well, octopus? It's famous for it. We got there quite early in the morning. So we're not about to try pulpo <laughs> at like uh, 10 o'clock in the morning or something like that. We did try it in Puerto Marin, and I think we had it again once after that, but we did have it in Belize. Leaving there, you kind of go up the hill, down the hill, cross the road, and then there's a church. It's about a kilometer outside of town, Santa Maria de Melide, and it's pilgrim-friendly. It's got a stamp. I went in there one time, and there was a bird trapped inside. I caught the bird, and I came out the door. And I just lifted my hands in the air and parted them triumphantly and released the bird. 
What I didn't know was that a group of 12 Korean pilgrims had come up in the meantime. So it was quite a theatrical event. I think they were very impressed. I like to believe that there are still stories told about me in Korea to this day. You're a legend. <laughs> in my own mind, at least. So from Meili Day onward to Arzua, it's another 13, 14 kilometers. Yeah. What stands out to you in this stretch? Well, it was long. Uh, there was a long <laughs> hill going up into Ribadiso, I think it was Ribadiso. Up and then down, steeply down to that bridge. Yeah, that's right. That was a long stretch. Again, it was a nice walk, but it was quite long. And at the end of a long day, it felt like a long day at that point. We wanted to stay in Ribadiso, but it was full. Ah, It's a beautiful spot right on the river there. It's so great. And that's an original Pilgrim Albergue. That's just been refurbished, brought back to life. It's amazing. Yeah, we were hoping and we checked every place in town, but everything was booked. One of the ladies that we were traveling with actually ended up having a room gifted to her. Somebody else had booked a room hmm. and then they were walking together and the person who had booked a room decided that they wanted to continue to walk on. And they said, why don't you have our room? And so we met her there in Ribadiso <laughs> and she said, guess what? We have a place for the night. And I thought, oh man, <laughs> I wish I had that place. <laughs> But I thought, good for you. It was such a beautiful spot. And we, you know, we just wished that we could have stayed there. So we journeyed on to Arzua. And I think there's another little hill up to Arzua, which felt longer than it actually was. <laughs> because it's right at the end, that last little stretch, especially thinking about Ribadiso and going, I wish I was in Ribadiso, but then going to Arzua. So Arzua was a larger center, not too big, but a, a little bit of a larger center. And there were lots of vacancies. We didn't have any problem finding a place in Arzua. There are so many albergues there. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like that entire road through town is just one albergue <laughs> after another. The thing that I remember about Arzua as well was meeting the nurse and daughter who had had a look at my eye. We had supper and then we were walking along and saw them eating at a restaurant and sat down with them and had a great conversation with them and realized that this is probably the last time that we were going to see them because we were going to walk the next day to Pedruzzo and they told us they were going to walk all the way to Monte del Gozo. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we learned on the Camino was really to welcome and release people really well because you run into so many people in the some people you just want to hold on to. You wish you could walk the whole Camino with them and you realize that you're not going to. We really felt like we needed to welcome people well and release people well, regardless of how long we had them for. So this was one of those interactions. We only had two or three interactions with this nurse and her daughter, but they were really special. And so you were walking the stage that we'll be talking about up next, Arzua to Opedrozo, 19 kilometers, so shorter day. It's that second to last day. It's a weird feeling knowing just how close the end is. Mm -hmm. It is. It's one of those wistful moments when you leave, you go, okay, this is second to last day. Throughout the journey, we, we always kind of held it loosely and we thought we, we're not sure if we're going to make it. You know, at the beginning when you're in St. Jean, you're asked, are you going all the way to Santiago? And uh, we would say, ah, yeah, we hope to. Um, <laughs> uh, we hope to get there. We're not sure if we're going to get there. That's the plan. And then you get to this point and you go, okay, well, like we're within striking distance here, right? We're going to get there. And, and there's still that sense that you don't want this journey to end. So again, we left quite early in the morning and walked through this section. There were lots of pilgrims that felt like the energy just continues to build the closer you get to Santiago. One of the people I met up with in this section was a, a South Korean pilgrim that I had had a conversation with him like a few days prior. And 
we didn't quite finish the conversation. And it was just one of those conversations that you want to continue to have. And he popped up along the trail. Um, (laughs) And so what I remember most about this section was walking with him and having a two to two and a half hour conversation with someone that I had only met a couple of days prior. And we had had some very brief conversations. But once we got into it, it was like this two and a half hour conversation that was quite significant. That's what I remember about that section of the trail. Yeah, it's like an extended summer camp. (laughs) You know, it's really nice, easy walking, really broad footpaths that are going under those tall eucalyptus trees. It's peaceful, but there's a ton of people coming in and out trying to find a place to pee off the side of the trail. Lots of outdoor eating spaces at bars that have popped up along the way. And just that vibe of anticipation that runs through it. It's all those cafe con leches that make, <laughs> make you want to go pee. <laughs> Part of that is that, hey, you want to stop everywhere you can, right? And have conversations with people. And so you're drinking. I anyway drank a lot of coffee along <laughs> that section of the trail. It's a vicious cycle because you want to get access to a bathroom. And so you pay for the coffee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is another one of those stretches where you're walking along and it's pretty flat and you'd never notice it on an elevation profile, but there is just a vicious little uphill that leads to a bridge and then the final descent towards Arca and Pedroso. The whole section is undulating. I mean, there's nothing, everyone says it's flat, but there's nothing flat about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very undulating and at times vicious, like you say, you're not really expecting it and you always get fooled into thinking it's going to be flat. And then you find these little killer hills. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Pedrozo, it's an interesting place. I have actually skipped it more often than I've gone into it. Mm. You can continue straight on the Camino when you get to the highway and just walk without ever entering the town proper. Or you can turn left. And really, the bulk of the town is just on that highway. What was your experience like there? Well, we turned left into town. And, you know, it was a busy little place. We had, uh, again, booked a private room, but it was last night, last night on the Camino. And so we wanted to savor that. We ended up finding a group of people. This was one of the cool things. I had met a guy back just outside of Leon, and it was his first night on the Camino. And he was a Canadian as well. I had met Canadians, but nobody, I'm a hockey fan. Nobody wanted to talk hockey while they were on the Camino. (laughs) And so I met this guy who wanted to talk hockey, and we had this great conversation just outside of Leon in the Albergue. And then we last saw him again in Astorga. And so that was the last time we saw him. I ran into him again in Pedroso, and we had supper together with him. Again, sharing stories, sharing life along the trail. He had had some form of cancer before coming on the Camino and was actually in treatment and then was going home after the Camino to do some more tests. Wow. And so I'm like... The inspirational stories, I was inspired by his courage and his willingness to get out there. I initially thought, you know, when I first met him, because we all make these judgment calls, I thought, man, he's really out of shape, you know, (laughs) coming on the Camino. (laughs) And then you hear a story and you go, oh, my goodness, you are a man of courage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's humbling to hear people's stories, right? Because of the fact that he was just willing to step out onto the Camino and walk And by the time he walked into Santiago, he was walking full days in full strength. And it was great to see that. Hmm. And then we had a second supper. (laughs) (laughs) We 
we were walking around looking for people and jumped into another uh, restaurant where we saw some other folks and met some new pilgrims and drank some more wine because we just didn't want that experience to end. And so we ended up staying up late and having two meals and feeling probably a little too full at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, man. See, you have this heartwarming, uplifting story to call upon from Pedrozo. And the best I've got is the one night we stayed in the municipal albergue there. And one of the guys in my group started shouting military commands in the middle of his sleep waking up the whole albergue that's all i've got yeah well i have great memories of pedrozo <laughs> i'm glad you can carry us through this section the last day you couldn't avoid it forever 19 kilometers pedrozo to santiago how early did you wake up we got up around 4 third quarter to 5 in that area we were on the trail by 5 5 30 but it was actually quite wild because we came out onto the Camino at the same time as a school group came out onto the Camino. <laughs> so we, we had a group of kids out there and their teachers and they were holding signs and they were singing songs and they were just having a grand old time. We wanted to start the morning out, you know, with some quiet and reflection <laughs> and thinking about the journey past and what was waiting for us in Santiago. And here's this massive school group singing songs, this big celebration. And so my wife and I turned to each other and said, let's try to get ahead of them. And so we started out at a pretty good clip. And then at some point I thought I should take some pictures or a video of this group. And so I stopped. And at this point, my eye had gotten so bad. I say that I had about 20% of my vision left in my right eye mm -hmm. because I couldn't see everything. It just sort of gone dark for me. Yes, I should have jumped into a taxi and gone to Santiago to receive treatment. But I was, you know, I, I had <laughs> seen a doctor in Madrid and he'd helped me and I thought that I was on the way. And so anyway, I stopped and I took some pictures and, and my wife just kept on going and I lost her. So here I was having to stumble around in the dark, <laughs> trying to find her on the trail. And it's quite busy at that time. And so it took us a little bit to actually get reconnected along this way. But that was the first time along the Camino that some panic actually set in. And I thought, <laughs> I, I think I'm in a bit of trouble here, but thankfully managed to find her again. She stopped realizing that I wasn't with her <laughs> anymore. I think one of the cool sections too along this section is we saw lots of families walking together. Hmm. And so you see moms and dads and their kids, and it really started to stir up. Uh, we've got kids and grandkids, and so it started to stir up some uh, longing for home and longing for our own family at this point. And we started saying, you know, oh, wouldn't it be great to walk the Camino with our kids and our grandkids? This would be such a fantastic experience to do this as a family. I have a perhaps controversial opinion. <laughs> I'm always disappointed in the sense that I don't think this last walk is very interesting. <laughs> It's like the first five, six kilometers, it's still nice Galician walking, and then it spreads out. There's a lot of road. The scenery is not especially interesting. It's not a terrible day for it, just because your mind is in such an anticipatory mode that you're not going to get down on it. But I find it kind of underwhelming. I hear you. Yeah, I totally hear you. And then there's that long line of pilgrims that we call the conga line into Santiago. <laughs> but at the same time, there's a bit of a celebratory feel to it. So there were some cool, some cool moments, I think, as well. But I hear you. It's not, it's not the most interesting walk. And we ended up doing a lot of it in the dark anyway, because of the time that we left. And of course, there are two traditional stopping points along this walk. There's Lavacoya, where pilgrims traditionally would clean themselves before arrival. Much less of that these days. And Monte de Gozo. What were you thinking when you got to the top of that hill? 
it really is the first time that you get to see the spires in Santiago. There was that part of it where it's a little bit exciting, but Monte del Gozo is a strange place. It's like (laughs) this compound that was built, and I guess a lot of pilgrims spend the night there, their last night on the Camino. I wondered why anyone would want to spend their last night (laughs) in this spot. Maybe you could help me understand that, but uh, it was a little bit strange. I did it once, and I felt like I should. Like The appropriate thing was to have that night of anticipation, looking at it, thinking about it, putting yourself in the frame of mind of arrival. I think for some, there might be that value if you haven't Mm. gone through that reflective process prior. And it certainly kindles that, you know, that moment when you see the spires. So it's just sort of like freezing you in that moment before you actually go. So maybe there's some value in that, but the space itself is kind of stultifying. And yeah, my impulse now is to get out as fast as I can. I can see that. We really took time to reflect because, like I said before that, we were kind of wondering if we would ever reach Santiago. And and at this point, we really could see that we were going to reach it because you could see it. I think at that point, I started to remember people that I had journeyed with that didn't make it. Mm. There was the Australian lady who had to go home, I think it was around Ponferrada, and actually spent some time in a hospital in England to convalesce. There were two Korean gentlemen that we walked with and they got called home because one of their mothers took ill and eventually ended up passing away. You know, the Irish pilgrim that we walked with that ended up going home, the South African lady that we walked with who had an injury and ended up leaving in Leon. And so we really felt fortunate to be at that spot because we did not take the journey for granted. And I don't think that anyone should take it for granted. It is something that should be held loosely because just because you start in St. John doesn't mean that you will end up in Santiago. So there was a deep sense, I think, for us of gratitude that we were able to get to this point. How did you approach your arrival in Santiago? You have to walk through a really uninviting, unspectacular portion of the Camino. It's not a great section to walk through. I think it's about five kilometers from Monte del Gozo. So, you know, at some point there's this excitement level that rises in you because you know you're going to get there. And we just wanted to get through that piece as quickly as possible, to be quite honest. And so we walked quite quickly through that section and then eventually made it to the old city. And at that point, you start to catch glimpses again of the cathedral and you start to really get a sense of excitement. Mm. But at the same time, I had a sense of sadness because I didn't want the journey to end. And then we just sort of arrived unceremoniously. For us, because we didn't walk with a big group and we had lost our family, you know, you you hear stories. I've seen videos of people who walked with their big group, their family, and there's hugs and pictures and tears and all of that kind of stuff. And for us, there was none of that. We just walked (laughs) into the square and had a look at the cathedral. There was scaffolding up against the cathedral, so we didn't really have a great Uh, view of the cathedral. And so it was just like one of those, oh, well, we're here. (laughs) Still good, but... For us, it wasn't as exciting as we thought it might be. Yeah, for me, I think the biggest adrenaline rush is often going down the stairs before you make the turn into the plaza, right? It gets dark. Yes. Maybe the person with the bagpipes is there. There's the bagpipes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just that moment, because it, it feels like yeah. you are going through a tunnel and you're into the dark and you emerge into the light. You're in the plaza. There are a million pilgrims. There's the cathedral spires. It's, it's amazing. 
Yeah, I would agree. That would have been the best moment, actually, is walking through that tunnel with the piper playing and just emerging into the square. And then we, we essentially went into the pilgrim's office and got our Compostela. And that was that unceremonious ending to the journey, but at the same time, still very significant. I think, you know, you can't take a journey like that for that long and not have some sense of gratitude and satisfaction at completing the journey. Is there something that you did in your time in Santiago from that point on? Well, like I said, we ended in a hospital. So I, <laughs> I after, after, after the pilgrim's office, I went to a private hospital. I, I managed to find one with the help of somebody from Santiago and went to see a doctor and managed to get in to see an ophthalmologist who had done a residency in Vancouver, Canada. They spoke English and so we could converse. And he took one look at my eye and he said, your eye is not infected. You have inflammation in your eye. And so it had been misdiagnosed. And he said, listen, it's commonly misdiagnosed. It's nobody's fault. It happens all the time. Most doctors, if they haven't been trained, they can misdiagnose it. And so he gave me some treatment. And because we had booked two nights in Santiago, I managed to see him. And then once I kind of got that under control and underway, we went out and, and had a pilgrim supper with some people that we had met along the way and had the great evening just celebrating in Santiago. I mean, there is that sense of celebration at the end where you do sit around and drink wine and tell stories late into the evening. And then the day we were scheduled to leave, we decided that we would go to, we had gone to a pilgrim's mass the day before. There was no swinging Buttafemario, but we had gone to a pilgrim's mass. And so the, the day we were going to leave, we said, let's just take one more walk through just to see if there's anyone that we know that had walked with us earlier in the journey. And so we walked through the cathedral while the mass was going on. We were kind of looking at faces in the crowd. And, and there sitting against the pillar was this, there's a history professor that we had walked with for quite a long way, part of our Camino family. And he was sitting against a, a pillar and his wife was there with them. And he was quite a reserved guy. But when he saw us, you know, his face just lit up and he jumped up. And for the first time on the Camino, he gave us a hug. And he was as happy to see us as we were to see him because they had missed their Camino family as well. And we were so glad we just took that last little tour of the cathedral because we managed to see somebody that we had, that was part of our early Camino family. So it was like one last gift at the end of the Camino. That's awesome. That's a great note to end on. Graham, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for helping me make it to Santiago. Well, oh, thanks. It's been great. Appreciate it. After wrapping up the call with Graham, I mechanically went through the post-interview motions, unplugging the microphone, converting the recording, uploading it into the appropriate Audacity file, and rolling up my headphone cable. And then I paused and stared at the wall for a minute. There's no comparison, of course, between a real, actual, physical pilgrimage and these conversations. But nonetheless, the ending still felt abrupt. It was weird. I hadn't expected anything of the sort. It's funny. The sense of incompleteness is kind of like a clearly defined villain. It demands action. But you know what kind of action is required to redress that discomfort. By contrast, the problem of completion is a more complex beast. What's one to do with oneself when the goal has been achieved? Nonetheless, it is with satisfaction that I do complete this series. My thanks, of course, to Sherry and Graham for getting me over the hump. Thanks as well, though, to Kathy Diaz and Rebecca Gallo, Deb Rausch and David Smith, Miguel Cura and Ross Fields 
and Rod Hoekstra and Bob Scheidt for all being part of the journey over the last few years. Finally made it. You can find the Camino Podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWoodson.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Nobody asked me.